I applaud so. that. I've only got one page about your bachelor party. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have a stuff bun dumpling. Oh, here we go. Oh, there we go. Oh. Yeah. Oh, no, it's okay. Come on. Okay. I'll have a stuffed bun, a dumpling, and a lemon iced tea. I'm going to have the exact same thing, please. And uh, could you bring some napkins, please? Do you have any napkins? Thank you. So, uh, are we recording? We're recording. This is live from the foremost... House. Yes. <laughs> 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 this is live from the Promosa Diaz for. Thanks for telling us that you're uh, starting. Wednesday, July the 13th, 2005. Yeah. I'm Peter Rukavina. I'm Dan James. And I'm Stephen Garrity. And we're here live at the Formosa Diaz. Uh, okay. Well, we're a little more organized today, although we only decided to record this episode 15 minutes ago. So, uh, But we do have a list on the wall that Stephen will post with the show notes. Oh, we're going to show notes. Show notes. In when did I become the secretary? In, in OPML. <laughs> um, we, uh, I think we should describe a little bit here, too, because we're looking way more pro and cool now. Well, actually, just as you guys were gathering your audio gear, I was uh, in a Skype conversation with Johnny Moore over in England, and we were talking about audio gear and podcasts. So. You live in the future. I do live in the future, yeah. So we've got a sweet new little Behringer mixer, and uh, Dan brought in his uh, vocal mic from home. And what is it, man? It's an Apex uh, <laughs> 435. Um, something like that. Yeah. It looks really cool. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have pictures of that as well. In yeah. the the, so the mic is plugged into the mixer, which is plugged into my iMic, which is plugged into my iBook, which is plugged into the internet. <laughs> you know, so the only thing lamer than podcasting is podcasting about podcasting. Yes. Okay, that's the last of the technical. Sorry, I brought it up. See, I wonder why we can't get ourselves a TCPIP uh, microphone. It plugs into a network. Yeah, it plugs into a network. Or a Wi-Fi. You can just podcast from anywhere. Yeah, Wi-Fi. There you go. I'll put that in the Wikipedia. As one of your projects? That's one of my projects, along with the open bread. Yeah, I'm sure I'll get one as soon as you... Well, why don't you start telling us a bit about your... We're going to start by talking a bit about travel. Okay. the recent travel. And, uh, well, actually, Dan, you were in... uh, Peru a couple months ago. I was in Peru. Actually, Dad, you were in Peru a couple Tell of months ago. Tell us about it. You um, sound like Regis. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be Kelly. There were six of us who went down to Peru for 18 days, um, and we kind of went all around the southern half of the country. Um, Can I interrupt with a question? Yeah. Why did you go to Peru? Um, we decided, uh, Becky, my wife, and I decided that we wanted to go to tourist destinations that had infrastructure for tourists, but weren't touristy destinations. Thank you. And, and why did you go with six people? Um, well, on our honeymoon last year in Costa Rica... You went uh, with six people. There was, <laughs> there was just the two of us, obviously. And was it boring? And uh, there was times during the day where you were, you were like... I wish there was more people here. Uh, you know, I wish... It's turning into an interesting commentary on yeah. marriage. Well, it's the first time, you know, you spend, you know, an extended period of time That's for true. 24 hours a day um, with your significant yeah. other. I think and I'll get a Game Boy to work around that. <laughs> a Game Boy is also a solution. So we decided it would be fun to go with friends. Um, so it was us and uh, Becky's brother and uh, his brother's girlfriend and then two friends of ours. Um, 
as well. So we all traveled down. Um, we landed in Lima. We flew from Charlottetown straight to Toronto. We were up in Toronto all day, and then we flew to Lima overnight from Toronto. Direct from Toronto. Direct from Toronto. Um, How long is that flight? Uh, it's about seven and a half hours. Um, for the remarkably cheap price, return ticket from Charlottetown for $738 Canadian. That wow. is pretty amazing. Taxes and everything. Taxes and everything. That's, That's pretty good. Kitten poodle. Um, it used so to cost that much to go to Somerset. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did you find the uh, traveling with six people uh, logistically and hatefully? Well, there was... Um, a couple of people were a little bit younger than Becky and I, um, and we had kind of planned the trip. So our itinerary, we had shown people before, and they said, "Hey, that's a good idea." And it was pretty, it was pretty loose. We knew where we were going each day, but we didn't have plans particularly for each day, unless we were signed up for a tour of some sort. Um, so it was a little bit different managing other people's time. Uh, it was a little more stressful than I would have hoped it to be. Um, were you like the band leader? Sometimes. Um, Did you have to say, "Okay, everybody, hustle up." <laughs> I believe at one point I might have had to say that, um, but anyway, it was it was it was not bad. It was uh, not like you were traveling with twenty people. No, so exactly. It wasn't like a high school band. No, and we all knew each other and we were all friends, so it's not a big deal at all. Oh, sorry. Oh no, no that's no. okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, so we were able to, to deal with those interpersonal issues pretty easily. Yeah. Would you do it again? Um, with the, like, not probably not with that many people. No. Yeah, probably four or five. Like travel with another couple or something? Yeah, another couple would be great. Um, yeah, it's just when you're responsible for other people, it's a little bit different of a trip for you personally than if you weren't responsible. For we, we have traveled sort of in minor ways, never on an extended trip like that, but we've traveled with Catherine and I and Oliver and then someone else. And it's often... Like, because Oliver has to go to sleep or something, it's often useful for, like, the third person and the second person to go off somewhere while the first person is looking after Oliver. <laughs> and, uh, so, as you age... As we have kids. As you have kids, yeah. So we landed in Lima, um, which is the capital of Peru, and then we took off from Lima and flew to Arequipa, um, which is uh, the other capital of Peru. There's actually some um, some bitter... Bitter thoughts between it's the, the summer side of Peru. It's the s no, but it's actually they the people in Arequipa or Arequipa think they're better than the people in Lima. Have you ever been to Summerside? <laughs> 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 no one's gonna get this. <laughs> yeah. but anyway, there's some tension. Look in the Wikipedia and the show notes. And we didn't know this when we when we flew in um, before we flew in, but apparently Arequipa is in the middle of a desert, like literally a desert, absolutely nothing growing at all, um, and unbelievably dry. Which you wouldn't think. Thank you very much. Which you wouldn't think. Oh, sorry. <laughs> when you were thinking about Peru. Thank you very much. Right. Yeah. It's it's on the Pacific coast. Um, so you know, I think of the Pacific coast like Vancouver. Yeah, yes. lush and all that. Lush, but apparently, just the way that the air currents move and the water currents move, that it gets absolutely no precipitation a year. It's sunny, 310 days a year and 24 degrees every day. Um, so it's a little dry, um, and it's at uh, 8,000 feet elevation. Um, so it was a little bit high. So we had, you know, light headaches when we got off the plane, things like that. But it was a gorgeous city. We absolutely loved it. 
Um, and from there we went up and toured Kukulka Canyon, uh, which is the second deepest canyon in the world, uh, which is twice as deep as the Grand Canyon. Which I had never heard of. No. Yeah. yeah. Which is really How do you, weird. what's it actually called? Kolka? Kolka Canyon. Like K-O-L-K-A? C-O-L-C-A. Okay. It needs a catchy name like the Grand Canyon. Like yeah. the Super Canyon. Yeah. Yeah. The best canyon ever. <laughs> canyon Arrow. Yeah. Um, and then from Etiquipa we went to Cusco, which is kind of the tourist capital of the uh, country. That was on the Amazing Race. That was on the Amazing Race. As was Etiquipa. Oh, it was. Yeah, as was Lima as well. Too. Um, so in Cusco, we really were only there for a few days, uh, and then we traveled up to the very famous Machu Picchu, um, the ruins in the mountains, which were absolutely phenomenal and unbelievable. And it's very hard to put them into words um, when you walk up and you're in this, you know, couple of thousand-year-old ruins um, on the top of a mountain, pretty much. Um, it's pretty amazing, and they're huge. They're, they're absolutely massive. Mm-hmm. And then we went from there and we flew to uh, a town called Puerto Maldonado, um, which is the entry into the Amazon basin. And we got on a uh, kind of a long, skinny canoe-like boat. Wow. 15 other people, and we went upstream three or four hours to a... On the Amazon. On the Amazon. Wow. In the Amazon Basin. So this would be a feeder river oh, over the Amazon Basin. You've never been? No. Uh, it was the Tambo Pada River, I believe it was. And we went to a place called the Explorer's Inn, which is an eco-lodge type of thing. Um, no electricity, um, running cold water, no hot water. Uh, and it was fantastic. We saw five different kinds of monkeys and crocodiles, or I guess they would be caimans, um, to be correct, and a whole bunch of other different types of wildlife. Yeah, I was, I was going to correct you about that. Uh, uh, including the world's <laughs> largest rodent, really? uh, which is like 150 pounds. It like a super beaver. <laughs> it was like a super beaver. It was amazing. So you're one of those, when the tourism uh, Prince Edward Island people talk about the new... Uh, Eco travelers. That's you. Well, somewhat. Yeah, I guess. No, I mean, that's what people like. People don't want to go to the art gallery or I don't know what people used to do, <laughs> sit around or something. Now they want to go up the they Amazon tributary. Underwear and they were in the river. Or yeah. Something. It was. There are twenty some different eco lodges on this river, and they all have to adhere by very strict ecological guidelines. But I bet twenty five years ago there were no eco lodges on that river. There was one. The one we were in oh, is the right. oldest, and it started in nineteen seventy six or something like that. Um, and it was it was fantastic. The pace of life there is just so much slower, and the jungle food was amazing. They walked by with papayas that were the size of literally you know two of our watermelons, and just fantastic. Two, two metric watermelons. Yeah, two metric watermelons. Yeah. Not Imperial Watermelon. Which would be a great name for a band. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, then we flew back to Lima um, and then back to Canada um, via Toronto again. So it was was a fantastic flight. One of the things that that we noticed the most was um, the airline in Peru called Land Peru, which is a subsidiary of Land Chile was the best airline I've ever been on. Um, it made Air Canada, WestJet, everyone else look like amateurs. The planes were super clean and super great condition. They had more staff on the plane than most, so you always had someone you know, attending to your needs. And uh, they served a full meal on a 45-minute flight. Hmm. They had it delivered with well. drinks and collected in 25 minutes, and it hmm. was fantastic. It was just remarkable. I think people who grow up thinking of Air Canada as the gold standard of airlines are often surprised. I've been surprised. Like in, the, I had the same experience in Thailand with taking Thai Airways within Thailand. You know, like a 45 minute flight and it was the same sort of thing. They gave you a meal and there was like twice as many staff as you would expect. And 
we flew from Lima to Arequipa, Arequipa to Cusco, Cusco to Puerto Maldonado, and Puerto Maldonado back to Lima, those five flights in total were $250 US per person. Mm -hmm. Wow. So we could go live like kings there? You would be considered uh, upper class anywhere in Peru. Hmm. As opposed to your <laughs> slovenly uh, <laughs> upper middle class here. I'm middle of the road, suburb. So, uh, what's next? I'm going to chew my food first. Um, Becky and I are going to experiment with a extended working vacation where somewhere with internet where I can try and do my job um, on a part-time basis. Um, and we're thinking about Venezuela for one or two months next spring and renting, actually renting a home there. Living in, a, in a one place and then kind of doing day trips from there. So you're familiar with the concept, Peter, which is a great segue to... Thank you. Thank you very much. The lemon iced tea has arrived. Yes, well, I guess that is a good segue. Um, I've sort of been wanting to experiment with that mobile worker lifestyle idea that everyone claims is true, and I've never knew, known whether it was true. So I sort of took like five years to arrange my life to the point where I didn't have to physically be in Charlottetown, you know, near clients and having meetings and that sort of thing. So I could sort of, in theory, be anywhere. You brought your brother. I brought my brother in, yeah, <laughs> to sort of watch over the servers. And I moved in with Silver Orange to have Dave watch the network. And so, so I had a created a situation where it was it was theoretically possible for me to leave Charlottetown for longer than a you know a week's vacation and to work because I should in theory as he said be able to find internet anywhere and work anywhere so uh, before Oliver starts kindergarten in the fall we thought well let's put this to the test and see whether it actually works and we're sort of testing some other things like can I actually work part of the day and hang out with Catherine and Oliver for the rest of the day or will I like I do here work all the time or so we uh, we sort of cast it around for a place we were originally going to go to Slovenia because I'd like that so much in October but it was very difficult to find a place to rent that didn't cost $2,000 a week in Slovenia. Really? And yeah, it was weird. I think because it's so, you know, relatively speaking, it's unusual for Western tourists to go to Slovenia. There's not a lot of infrastructure sort of left over there. So yeah, so there's no supply. No, and the same thing seemed to be true with Croatia and sort of all of, you know, the new Western Europe or the old Eastern Europe. Uh, so ironically, we ended up going to France, which is something I'd never thought about. I thought it would you know, cost us more than we could ever imagine, but France turned out to be the inexpensive alternative. Uh, we ended up renting a house in a small village called Anyan, which is near Montpellier in the very south. The house itself cost us $750 for 29 or 21 days, I guess it was. And uh, it was a beautiful medieval townhouse, four floors with two bedrooms and a rooftop terrace and a garden in the back and very self-contained with washer-dryer and sort of uh, anything you would ever need in terms of living, uh, you know, full housekeeping gear and everything else. My dumplings have arrived. <laughs> and uh, so we basically moved there for 21 days and sort of had this hybrid tourist uh, liver or whatever you call it. Local? <laughs> local. <laughs> this hybrid tourist local existence. I mean, we knew that we were leaving and everyone else in the uh, village knew we were leaving, but we did notice, like, you know, the seventh time we went to the boulangerie to buy our bread, we got slightly better service maybe than, you know, so the hey, first day. Hey, because hey, Americans are bad. Well, yeah, or, or just, you know, these people are in it for the slightly longer than short haul yeah, sort of yeah. thing. So. But it was a beautiful area of France. I knew nothing about France. I'd had, to be honest, no interest in ever going to France ever. So, 
this was all very novel to us. Um, and I basically I, I underestimated the availability of free Wi-Fi. I sort of thought every village in the world had free Wi-Fi. This village turned out to be the one that didn't. So uh, the the comical aspect of the trip was that basically what I did is set myself up with a web server on my iBook so I could develop web applications in a self-contained way. And then whenever I needed to sync them up with the actual web server, I had to sort of go trolling for internet in various surrounding communities. And so you would see me in my uh, Peugeot. War touristing. Yeah, <laughs> war touristing. Can I ask a totally tangent question based on that? Yeah. Totally nerdy. Do you use any kind of version control system <laughs> for your when you're developing? Uh, none whatsoever. No. Okay. Um, basically because it's always just been me. Oh, yes, I control so, yeah. my own versions in my head. But uh, it's an interesting question because now that Johnny's working with me, we're starting to run into sort of like, did you change that file? No, I changed that file. That sort of thing. So. Okay. Sorry, tangent over. Um, anyway, so I would drive around in my Fujo partner with my Wi-Fi uh, stumbler thing turned on, and I would look for open Wi-Fi access points, and usually found them within an hour of looking, and sort of developed three or four like within a half an hour's drive. And uh, so I worked most mornings uh, in uh, you know in the fourth floor of the townhouse, looking out over the the uh, medieval village, and uh, and then in the afternoons we sort of went to the zoo or to the Mediterranean or up into the hills and uh, it, it worked. The whole, I think we proved that the I can work anywhere thing was true. You'd probably have to talk to Catherine to see how it worked for her, but I, I think she saw more of me there than she does here, so I would argue that it probably it probably worked for all of us, and Oliver certainly had a wonderful time, so I think uh, you know, it's something we'll probably do again. Well, as an observer, the uh, <coughs> when you, since you didn't have sort of pervasive connectivity when you were there. You probably got, you might have gotten a lot of work done, but from someone who communicates with you online mostly, even though you're just downstairs, <laughs> you had dropped off to the face of the earth <laughs> for three weeks. Because we couldn't eat dumplings with you. Really? And you weren't on instant messaging or... See, I sort of felt... Well... So we don't think your experiment went very well. No. <laughs> well, it was weird because I did get... I realized what a huge distraction the Internet mm. is. Like, while I'm waiting for a file to upload, which takes eight seconds, I'll go over and surf Slashdot, which will lead me off to a blog. Which this is an enormous an problem. Later, I'll come yeah. back. So. so it was very, the discipline that I got, like, I developed an application there that probably in normal home working life would have taken me three months to develop. I basically developed it in, like, two and a half weeks of just determined effort. Hmm. And it was interesting, because I developed this application on an iBook, which relative to the actual web server is, like, a puny little computer. So when I actually uploaded to the server, because I had to optimize it for the iBook to work, you know, reasonably well, it like flies like the wind on the <laughs> server. So it actually ended up being a better project too. Hmm. So I've got the travel bug back. I sort of lost it for a while, but now I'm ready to go again. So what's next for you? <laughs> well, you were also in <laughs> Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. We can come back to that maybe, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know what's next for us. I think we'd like to do what we did in France again, but... Uh, do it in France or, or a different country? Uh, maybe a different country. Uh, I hear interesting things about Romania uh, or Estonia. Actually, I have a friend whose uh, parents were from Estonia, and I met some people at Reboot who were from Estonia. And it sounds so you're all about the Baltic republics, aren't you? Yeah. Are those Baltic republics or not? Well, Romania know. isn't, but Estonia is. The Baltics, the Balkans, anything that starts with B works yeah. for me. So. I've got South America covered. So, uh, 
you can have Europe, I guess. I guess so, yeah. Well, you guys, Asia. you guys would be the exception, almost, in the silver-orange world of people who have never actually not worked for an extended period away. There's sort of a half-and-half half at Silver Orange. There's, like, uh, the worldly jet-setters jet people who lived in New Zealand and London and Paris. London and Paris. Ottawa and Chicago. And, and then there's me, who lived, grew up ten miles from here and uh, hasn't lived anywhere else. It's actually, like, two miles from here. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you're, you're traveling yourself. Yes, I'm going um, to London and Paris and about a week and a half for my honeymoon. And uh, we're going to be spending about a... W we're flying Zoom Airlines from Halifax, which is about a three-hour drive from here. Uh, speaking of which, do you guys know how much it costs to leave a car at the Halifax airport? Johnny will know that because he just did it for exactly the same um, So we're going to drive over and leave the car there and uh, fly directly to Gatwick at London. And then we're in London for a few days. We're taking the train uh, through the tunnel to Paris for about a week and then back to London for a few more days. And then Zoom Airlines back to Halifax again. It's my first time, it's both of our first times uh, in Europe. So I'm looking forward to it. I think we're going to be, well, the vacations that you guys have talked about, if you call them vacations, are like sort of more off the beaten path. We're going to be full on tourists. I'm going to be standing in lines. Visors on your head. Visors on my head. Fanny packs. Yeah. yeah. I'll yeah. probably be, be mugged repeatedly. Lying t-shirts. Yeah. I'm going to like stand in a line. To well, see the, I mean, the irony is you're going to see things which I have, I mean, I've been in London for a grand total of four days in my life and spent most of it sort of eating and changing and diapers and in stuff. The airport, so yeah. 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 So, I mean, you're going to sort of see the things that I've only ever dreamed about. <laughs> like I'll a British pub. <laughs> well, or like the Eiffel Tower. Like when we were driving back to Paris, I saw the Eiffel Tower like off in the distance. So presumably you're going to go up it. Or it's on, it's on my list of uh, stereotypical tourist things to do. And I actually am accumulating such a list. But there are reasons that those are stereotypical tourist things to do. That's true. Quite yeah. remarkable and yeah. important. Yeah, that's true. So we're going to, yeah, we're going to sort of do the tourist thing in London and Paris. I think the thing that I have found is that almost anywhere else is interesting. Yeah, that's true. I mean, other than New Brunswick. I and Somerset. <laughs> and Somerset. <laughs> no, but I mean, a anywhere in Europe, it, like when you read The Lonely Planet and it says, like, is Blukistan is not very interesting and not worth a stop, compared to Charlottetown, like, is Blukistan is probably the most exciting place you've well, ever the big, been. One of the big attractions to me is, and y this, you sort of touched on this, Dan, with Machu Picchu in Peru, but... Um, where we live here is has only been like with the current culture has only been colonized for a few hundred years tops. So the oldest buildings around here might be 200 years old. That's quite old for for this location. Whereas in Europe, it's easy to come across something that's 500 years old, a thousand years old, 2,000 years old, and it's the there's something different to that like when you when you're in one of the west coast cities in north america i always find there's an eerie feeling that everything there is like brand new made out of tissue paper <laughs> and it is it, it like a hundred years ago it just wasn't there no, that's true. and there's no substance to it yet there's no history there and we have a bit more of that on the east coast but nothing like um like in europe so i'm sort of looking forward to that because i've never really been anywhere 
like that. It was interesting in, in Cusco, particularly in Peru. Peru is home of the Inca civilization, which is like pretty old, right? Like pretty fantastically old and quite advanced um, compared to you know other previous civilizations. Uh, although they didn't have any written language, which was amazing. Really? But uh, in Cusco, they, a lot of the buildings were actually built on the old Incan foundations and Incan stonework is like literally I mean the new buildings were built the new on buildings, the the Spanish buildings when the Spanish took over the, the country um, were built on top of these these solidly built walls um, and the Incan stonework is remarkable it's literally boulders the size of me a six foot tall so it's still man. there and still lasts very yeah. well and you'll be sitting in a restaurant and there'll be an Incan wall right beside you um, and you know that wall is a thousand fifteen hundred years old and it's been there for that long. There's just nothing like that here in, in North America. Yeah. Although I must say, I did have a sensation earlier in the week, uh, or last week, I guess. I think it was, was it Jason Coffey who posted a link to that uh, America's, the growth of America animated timeline thing? Yes. Yeah. And I watched that and realized that my house in sh here in Charlottetown, which was built in 1827, predates the Civil War. And it just came after the War of 1812. And I sort of, for some reason, thought that the Civil War happened like in 1603 or something. And I <laughs> had no notion that there was like a war about slavery that happened in America within the lifetime of my house. Like that just sort of, yeah, it seems... And your house is relatively old for Charlottetown. Yeah, it would be one of the oldest houses it in the It didn't burn down. No, no. Fires, yeah. no. And the building we have that we work in is about 100 years old. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Five, yeah. And... And people would go into it thinking that this is like one of the oldest buildings we they've ever been in. Yeah. Well, we have people um, outside. We just painted our building last year, so it, it looks quite uh, quite nice right now. And we have tourists walking by, filming it and taking pictures of the front of it because it's an old Victorian, you know, fancy building. I was in uh, back to Steve's comment about the West Coast. How the West Coast kind of feels new um, and not in a good like way. It's gonna blow away. Yeah, I was visiting my my cousin in Calgary a year and a half ago. I guess it was. Notably not on the coast. <laughs> Notably not on the coast, but western yeah. uh, part of the um, the continent. And he took me to and kind of he was trying to impress me to the oldest building in Calgary, which is now a restaurant. And it was only three years older than the office building that I work wow. in and we own. So <laughs> it was not very impressive at all. Well, there's a restaurant here in Charlottetown called the... Is it called the Dundee? Or what's the restaurant at the Dundee called? I think it's called the Dundee. Yeah. Which, the Dundee's an interesting building because it's basically the same vintage as the office building. Mm -hmm. But they have covered it with this sort of fake stone. Um, which is made out of some sort of like ceramic-like material yeah. or something, and they cover the whole thing, so it sort of looks like this ye olde castle-type building. And I saw someone walking by it the other day, taking a picture of it, and they, uh, an obvious tourist. And I sort of felt like stopping them and shaking them and saying, "This isn't really that building." Well, that building was weird for me because I walked by it one day when I was half done, and it actually looks like stone. Oh, like I mean, it's a fantastic job. But I saw it's a lie. when it was half done, <laughs> half of the building was covered with styrofoam, half of it with this fake stone, and they were applying these, like, centimeter-thick fake stones that looked like they were foot deep. Which is funny, because Prince of Rhode Island has no stone on it. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, no, sand, right. you know, we're sandstone, and all of these stone buildings here, there's only a few, were built from stones hauled from hundreds of miles away. So one of the attractions of uh, Europe, oldness, Looking for some oldness. Check that off. We found that in, and we only know South America, we haven't been to Europe, um, that oldness, that maturity leads to a little bit more of a laid-back culture where when you have things that have been around you for 1,500 years, 
that puts time in perspective, and mm. you're not in a hustle and a bustle. Yeah, that's to get true. Things I done. think that's true. Yeah. I don't know if you found that in France. Yeah, or not. I mean, our it's interesting. Like every morning when we were in France, Oliver and I would get up about nine o'clock, and we would get dressed, and we would go downstairs, and we walk up the street to the boulangerie, which is like three blocks away, except on Thursdays when we had to go to the other boulangerie. And uh, we'd buy like a baguette and three croissants, and then we might stop and get some oranges on the way home. And then we'd go home and we'd have breakfast. And you know, by maybe 11, I would be ready to go up to work, and I'd work for like an hour and a half and get like five hours worth of work done. And then I'd come downstairs, and mm. it sort of felt like, like here I sort of I get up at nine and I think, oh shit, I should be at work now. And you know, yeah, that but that's not <coughs> like what you're talking about isn't just your schedule in Europe. No, no, it's just sort of the I think it permeates the. And the architecture and the environment. What's interesting is that I found, and we, we visited um, California a few times this past year around San Francisco, the sort of Silicon Valley area, and the, it was the complete opposite. Yeah. Where I act to the point where I thought it was almost eerie, where there was this air that it's the center of the world and time moves faster there, but it's an illusion. And when you leave, you're back in the real world. Like well, like, when we were driving around um, San Francisco that one night looking for something to do, and I think it was just sort of I like... I believe it was an all-night bowling alley yeah. you were looking for. <laughs> but I think we wanted to maintain... Like, we were sort of high on the idea of Silicon Valley. We were living on Internet time. Yeah, and we just sort of wanted to keep the dream alive. But And then we went back to the hotel <laughs> and, and went to, to watch TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's move down the agenda from uh, travel to terrorism. <laughs> Sorry, Steve, are you scared about going to London? Well, yesterday I was at uh, um, Jennifer's house, who's my Oh, now that she's your fiancée, she's Jennifer. I don't like the term, term fiancée, it's embarrassing. But anyway, yes. You're the intended. Wife, the, wo- the woman to who I will be married. Next Friday. Yeah. Or a week from a week Friday. From Friday. Um, we uh, were just sort of getting into the car, and the next door neighbor was out there, an older guy, and he said, uh, so going to London, eh? Yeah, I said. And then he said, Hope you don't get one of them bombs, <laughs> <laughs> which aside from being totally inappropriate, also made me laugh. But uh, people, several people have asked us though, myself you know, included. Are you, you know, has this affected your travel plans? And no, it has not. Yeah. And uh, first of all, I think like much of London was back up and running by the evening after the bombings, and uh, just the, I mean, as horrible as it was for the people involved. Uh, the scale of it, I just don't think was at a level that requires any kind of change of plans. I don't. I'm not afraid to to go to. Uh, You're not terrorized. I wasn't terrorized. No. See, I. The funny thing is that I, who am supposedly this worldly guy who's been everywhere relative to you, mm-hmm. I would be terrified of going to London really? now, and I would absolutely not ride the subway. Really? Are you yeah. Serious? Yeah. Well, I think like right like now I've had nightmares the in the last week. About like being trapped in the subway and things like it's just I don't maybe because I've been on it or something like I just so uh, are you gonna be bring like a headlamp and like two gallons of water? Well, I don't know. Like it, it just it does much more so than like it seems like the World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. If you worked in the World Trade Center or that surrounding area, you know you were affected by that. But then it was gone, and so it's not like I have an opportunity to go back to it now. But in the subway, it's like it's like a in irrevocable part of everyday life. I'm sure people who worked in Office towers in New York City, probably. Yeah, yeah, field. exactly. But I, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I guess I'm not in that situation. Well, but if you go to London, you can't help but take you know, the two. I did actually think. I wondered, like, is there any risk there? And I think if you actually calculated the risk, like, there's a far greater risk that I will get an aneurysm and die on the way back to the office. Yeah, you're probably. Too. Um, and I'm not afraid of that. Um, 
But I was also thinking, this is horrible and probably totally misguided, but major terrorism attacks <coughs> in the last few years, um, the uh, World Trade Center, the bombings on the trains in Madrid, and these bombings in London, they all happen before I get up in the morning. So I'm going to be at home asleep. Well, you know, and the irony of all this is that I'm the guy who was hanging on for dear life to his 16-month-old son in the back of a pickup truck on the streets of Chiang Mai in Thailand, so, which is probably yeah. far more dangerous than traveling in a subway has ever been. So, Yeah, but so no, I'm, I don't think... Not worried about it. The, the other, the reason, that, the other reason I put terrorism on the list is I've been trying to write this blog post, which I, I'm sort of equally at a loss for words and sort of afraid of writing it because I feel that I might get labeled as some sort of terrorist sympathizer. But <laughs> with that as an introduction, cell group leader. Well, I, like I guess I've been reading a week's worth of media now, and it's it's particularly interesting because there's really nothing for the media to talk about. Like it happens. Yes. That okay. was that was true. Even during the, the yeah, attacks. it was true like the morning or the the afternoon after. But um, if you look at the way that the terrorists are characterized, it's always like evil something or despotic or you know, it's always we seem to take great pains as a culture to try and turn these people into people who aren't people, like to turn them into unimaginable evil monsters. Monsters. And I wonder if we do that to our detriment because. Presumably Absolutely. these guys like had, or guys, I'm assuming they're guys, but they had mothers and fathers and they played in the pool as children. You know, like can, they I, were can I try to sum up your point? Yeah. Terrorists are people too. Well, see, that's why I haven't written the blog post <laughs> yet, because that's how it would inevitably come across. But well, I don't, I see the, the title of the blog post, which is perhaps the best thing about it, was Understanding Without Understanding. And what I was trying to get at is, I don't want to understand this because I don't want it to become commonplace. And I don't want to sympathize with it, and I don't want to understand it in a sympathetic sort of way. But I do think that if you're fighting an enemy, you should not try to turn the enemy into something that's not human, because then you won't fight De it. Demonizing the, the enemy can be dangerous, because yeah. it makes them more difficult to fight. The other thing I think is that we have failed as a world when this sort of thing occurs. Yeah. And I think we should take some. How come we don't sit down with the terrorists and ask them why they're mad at us and like? No, I don't. Do well, see, that's I don't think that mm -hmm. uh, because I think I think if you move up sort of several levels from that, I think as a world system, if you were a systems designer, we have failed. Uh, yeah. Like something is wrong with the system. There's a bug in the system when people are killing other people in some ways. Hmm. What you do about that as a systems designer, I don't know. Hmm. But, but like, hasn't it always been wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's what shakes us is you know, middle class North Amer people in North America, rich people in the world scale, mm -hmm. is that these things come a bit closer to home when something like this happens, because, you know, they're not happening in Mogadishu. Right. Um, I mean, the irony of all this, too, is that there was the there has been a terrorist incident, like, a block from my house at Providence House, like, which, if it had happened while I was living there, I mean, it wasn't on the scale, nobody's killed and that sort Some of thing. Some guy blew up a... Yeah, but if there was if there had been school children there five minutes earlier, there would have a, been a delusion to uh, high school chemistry teacher. I believe yeah, it was. yeah, exactly. Who was a person? So yeah. well, I mean, this will probably be, probably be out of date news by the time this gets uh, online. But the headlines I was reading last night or this morning about the London bombings were that the they think the bombers were young, like nineteen or twenty, and um, from Britain, which certainly makes it harder to fall back on our things like racial and 
stereotypes. Like these weren't these weren't like the, if you picture a terrorist in your, in your head right now, chances are you're picturing a middle-aged Mid- Middle Eastern man. I was thinking about this I last night. I was sort of I'm picturing the characters from Counter Strike. <laughs> I was they're middle-aged someone, someone who was sort of a cross between <coughs> the devil Hitler and those mugshots of the 9/11 bombers. Yeah, which were med- uh, middle-aged Middle Eastern men. Yeah, um, but these you know these guys were not not that. Yeah. Which I mean that shouldn't make a difference, but in it does because we have we have these stereotypes and they're uh, in some t- cases I think inevitable. Um, and that that certainly I think will humanize it for a lot of people. Okay, that's terrorism. So terrorism. Wow, uh, that's item two on a list of <laughs> roughly ten. And we're thirty six minutes into it, so we got to do the bullet points now. That was me snapping. We can skim over my way. Hey, let's take a small break <laughs> and let's listen to your camera motor. Oh yeah, see, I I have a uh, Canon PowerShot S three thirty digital elf camera. And I bought it a couple oh, years ago on eBay. Soy sauce on it. And I have soy sauce on the handle now. Bear this in, bear in mind as you listen to this that this is two weeks before he's going to the world capitals on his. Honey. It's a great camera and it's like a workhorse and I've dropped it down the hardwood stairs and it works really well. But I'm gonna see if you can hear this in the microphone now when it. <laughs> I'm going to zoom in and out a bit here. The motor is dying. So the camera has served me well. I would buy another one, hoping I get one as a wedding gift. But it's now that you've mentioned this on internet radio. You'll probably have 16. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Corey Doctorow will probably FedEx you one. <laughs> He's like my best friend. Yeah. Actually, my father sent me an email the other day because I had... Uh, shared a hotel with Cory Doctorow at Reboot. My father sent me an email said, your friend Cory Doctorow was on the internet the other day saying something. <laughs> yeah, I hear he's on the internet a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I thought he invented the internet. Queen Street Commons, go. I don't like when you point at me. <laughs> I like it's kind of like a McLaughlin group. <laughs> um, Queen Street Commons, um, we finally opened. Um, what is it? Um, the Queen Street Commons is Silver Orange bought the office building around the corner from us. Uh, we actually share a backyard with it. Second um, building in our real estate empire. Yeah. Uh, we're two buildings into a 100 building plan. Um, and we renovated the building all of this uh, winter and the spring. Uh, Nathan and I did it. Nathan's our technical director at uh, Silver Orange. I didn't know that was Nathan's title. Um, he's he's now the chief, chief carpenter engineer as well. Yeah. He's so like Scotty. <laughs> I guess so. Can you put that in a more <laughs> modern Star Trek reference? Or in a uh, sentence. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we um we renovated most of the building um, and we opened it up as a not-for-profit uh, organization that is, uh, its focus is to provide low-cost um, shared office space and office uh, infrastructure for consultants who work at other homes and need a place to meet with people, for people starting new businesses, for... Uh, pretty much anybody who wants to do it. We have everything from an aerospace engineer designing uh, jet engines for Pratt for Pratt and Whitney in Canada to um, people building websites or you know a student writing a thesis uh, working out of there. So it's not just for digital workers, quote unquote. Definitely not. Um, there's lots of people who just use the space to do analog work. I guess <laughs> it would be real work. I like Paper to call it. Paper and pencil work. Um, and we've gotten tremendous uh, interest in it. We've got upwards of 25 members right now. Um, we don't know what the building's capacity is yet, so we're kind of uh, sussing that out as we go along. How, what's the just over? How long have you been open? Two weeks? Uh, three weeks, I guess it would be. How many people tend to be there at the same time? Do you have any? Um, typically, two to four people, I would say, are there at any one time. Um, and the building 
feels empty. Um, sure. Yeah. But uh, I mean, we have the the two to four people are different people every time you go in. Um, so right, it's right. it's really interesting. Uh, the space is really working out well for the people. Um, so people pay to be members. They pay for access. It's a monthly membership fee of thirty five dollars. Um, that includes um, unlimited internet access, unlimited printing within reason, um, you know, and unlimited twenty four seven access to the building. The building includes like a sort of a lounge area. There's like some semi-private working space. There's a boardroom type room that you could use for meetings. Laundry facility. There laundry are laundry facilities, facilities. showers, bathrooms, um, a coat rack, and uh, it's actually um, when we finished designing the space and buying all the furniture and setting it up, we were quite envious of it because uh, it's nicer than our offices now. It is. Yeah. yeah. See, what intrigues me about this is that. I have been saying for years and years and years that the future of uh, economic development on Prince Edward Island is little businesses. Silver Orange would be at the maximum end of that, I guess. Uh, with our 11 employees. With your 11 employees. <laughs> but that, that, you know, one or two people working in Bredalbin on something. Like you and Johnny. Like Johnny and I. or you know, I, j I just think that those, those kind of uh, businesses are sustainable. They're nimble, you know, you can take on new projects and sort of mix and match things. I mean, it's it's hard to grow. You can't sort of, like, make the website for IBM, but that's okay. I mean, people in the cities can do that. Um, <laughs> but so I've always said that if we're trying to sort of foster that sort of thing, what we need is something like the Queen Street Commons. I mean, I haven't put it in those terms. I guess what I've, I've tended to say, in fact, is what we don't need is something like the Atlantic Technology Center, which is sort of, I think, if you talk to the people about the Atlantic Technology Center about their sort of rationale before they did it, they would probably have had the same rationale as you on a different scale. Well, the Atlantic Technology Center started um, based on discussion about turning some lofts on Queen Street into a group working area right. for a new media. A bit of background for people that might not be familiar with it. The Atlantic Technology Center is a relatively large for the size of our city new building that the, that the government built here as a place for technology businesses and they rent out space and there's sort of they call it incubator space I think for smaller businesses but it's, it's a lot more expensive and it's bigger and whereas the Queen Street Commons I mean a building was purchased but that was done as a real estate investment by Silver Orange almost separate from Queen Street Commons so the investment in the Queen Street Commons you know, the capital needed to start it was relatively small it was a few people's time which we were lucky to have and that saved us a lot of money, and then probably I don't know, a few thousand dollars. Yeah, in furniture. Yeah, and and that's it. And and it's funny because we really have no official programs within the Queen Street Commons, but those are happening. Like on Tuesday night, there's going to be a slideshow. Uh, I think it's Tuesday night. Don't quote me on that. Um, of the different trips that that Nick's been on and I've been on, and we're inviting the Commons members to come and see that. Right. Um, and those type of social networking events uh, probably will just kind of happen ad hoc in that in that space. I mean, it would be interesting for me to talk to people who work in the Atlantic Technology Center to see whether that sort of that dream of synergy and like someone from Deltaware bumps into someone from Widgetware and they say, hey, we need a new confabulator, and they say, well, let's have a joint project. Let's get like, some Vencap. Yeah, like, I wonder if that actually <laughs> happens. And they go to the Vencap guy down the hall. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe. if that's happening, maybe that's a good thing, and maybe I should stop being so negative about it, but it just sort of seems like antithetical to the well, island way of life. We, I can't say whether or not that happens uh, or not, um, 
but we've had a couple of people quit their leases or leave the technology center and come to the Queen Street Commons because right. it's what it's what they need. They wanted, and yeah. that's what they thought the technology center was going to be, but it didn't end up being. One thing that came to mind when you were talking about sort of your the idea that smaller businesses and smaller groups of one or two people is just sort of a maybe better way. I don't know if that's fair to characterize that the way you were putting it. One thing that comes to mind there is that it's an entrepreneurial thing to do that, and not everyone is an entrepreneur. And there were entrepreneurs involved in the starting up of Silver Orange, and I consider myself a key founder of the company, but had it been me by myself, I'd probably be working for someone else. I wouldn't do that anymore because of the experience I've had, but I'm not the personality that would go out on my own and start my own business. Neither am I, though. Uh, but I think you're mista mistaken about that, because I think most people would think what you do running your own business is terrifying and impossible for them. Yeah, I guess maybe. I, I mean, I have I no sense of that from the outside looking in. I guess I can't do that. But I think people's... <laughs> we're going to talk about entrepreneurism here, and it's not on our agenda. But I think um, there's, there's a closing gap between jobs and entrepreneurs right now in that jobs used to represent pension stability, and you know whether or not you're going to have a job the next day. Um, that isn't necessarily the case right now. I mean... There's lots of people, you know, from professors at universities to uh, head programmers in government. Um, they don't have the job, the sense of job security that my father would have had right. um, working for an organization. Um, and I think that's going to kind of narrow the gap between working for yourself point. and it's going to force people to become entrepreneurs. Right. Yeah. And I think too the the uh, Joe Cross um, Kraus, I might think it might be Kraus, from my yeah. site. Com at Benupi.net, I think is his blog address, just wrote an article on the lowering hurdles to becoming an entrepreneur, especially mm -hmm. in our industry, um, where he was comparing his current startup, Jotspot.com, to Excite.com, his first startup, and how it took Excite $3 million to get from concept to launch, but it only took Jotspot $100,000, and he looked at all the different mm -hmm. reasons. Um, and a lot of them are just technological advances and social advances, but like see, open source. I think that there's a, there's a maybe an unnamed category here because I I don't consider myself an entrepreneur because. Well, like, what do you consider yourself? Well, I mean, I'm not an employee, obviously. I do. I have a corporation that I'm president of, so I mean, in the you know, I'm a <laughs> businessman. But <laughs> at the same yeah, time, yeah, that doesn't seem right. No, but, but the thing is that I don't. I don't have a tremendous interest in growing the business. The business took no startup capital. The business basically has, you know, zero operating expenses. Um, it's I am a freelance worker working with my brother, who's a, another freelance worker for a client. Um, I don't. Who happens to use a corporation to send the bills through? Yeah, I mean the the corporation part of this. Like I consider when you're talking about someone starting a business for a hundred thousand dollars. I just that's like another world to me, I, and I think it's a different enough world that it's. So I, sh I feel uncomfortable calling it the same thing. There's a third category from working for someone else, being an entrepreneur. Like, do you call do you call Malcolm Stanley Potter in Stanley Bridge, or in Fredalban, who works for himself making pottery stuff? I mean, is he is he an entrepreneur or is he's he a potter? He's an artisan. Well, maybe that's <laughs> what I am. Then. I'm definitely not an artisan. Well, I think yeah. you are an artisan. I was just teeing you up to give me that compliment. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I think there's there's different levels. Um, I don't think. But you um, see, the technology center was built for entrepreneurs in the venture capital, growing business, great employment sort of way. Mm -hmm. I would argue that the Queen Street Commons, if it has a sort of a 
economic philosophy is geared more towards people like me. Mm-hmm. And we and silver orange might be a good example of something that's and another scale in between there, where yeah. when we started our company, we did it with uh, actually Dan and I started the first company bef- that one of the companies that merged to become Silver Orange. Shamefully named Metamedia. <laughs> yes. Um, and with we a $10,000 loan from, which was part of a government program to start, you know, youth entrepreneurship, and we basically bought two computers with that, two sweet, sweet computers, and. Uh, but, I mean, that was it in terms of capital, and we could have done it without that. We could have used our parents' 486s kind of thing. Um, and that gradually, on a relatively smooth scale, grew to what Silver Orange is now with 11 employees and, you know... Two buildings. And yeah, two buildings and a fair amount of revenue. And, and I say things like revenue. <laughs> <laughs> instead of money to buy food with. Yeah, instead of sweet coin. Yeah. And, but... but I mean, to start a company with 11 employees, um, you know, you need to the amount of money to cover that kind of payroll. But the gradual, we, I mean, you started off as just yourself, but now you have someone else working for you, which essentially doubles the amount of infrastructure, even if there really isn't yeah, much. Sure. Well, you went from working out of your home to having two offices, you know. But does no one at Silver Orange stays up at night worrying about how to make payroll. Um, yeah, there's two of us that do. Yeah. Um, and that's our job. You know, business... But happens. you don't have to do that. No. There have been occasions in the business where there there are sort of, you know, either money issues or big, just other big business issues that are sort of critical to the business where we'd but love I mean to sleep it's over. You're, it's interesting because that is sort of an amalgam. Like, you, you're sort of a... a a victim of Silver Orange, not a victim, but I mean you are. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, I mean you. you, you Some are people would say they are victims. Well, but but like if you think about you working for Deltaware, let's say, and I shouldn't be demonizing Deltaware like it's some big mega corporation. Or like EDS. Or yeah, whatever. yeah, some large data corporation, and yeah. you were like their guy responsible for CSS in the two square inches in the top right corner of the web page or something. Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't have to worry about whether you were going to get paid or not. You would have to worry about whether you were going to get fired or not, and and I'd probably kill myself. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, or somebody else. <laughs> but you've created a situation where you don't have to worry about the sort of the payroll remittances. But at the same time, if you decide that it's really important to you that Silver Orange start to make avocados, then you have some influence over that in a way that you never would in EDS. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's a pretty good balance for Struck. I think stability too, where you know someone who wants to go work for xyz.com um, and have that job stability where they don't have to worry about getting their paycheck, I think that's a load of bull because, yes, you don't have to worry about it, but chances are you might not get your next paycheck and they'll go under or, you know... You really have even less control over your long-term yeah. job security. As, as owners in a company, we can see our demise <laughs> for our head because, um, you know, we can see, you know, we don't have a project for three months from now, so we need right. to get one or we don't have the money for this, that, yeah, or the other thing. So we can make decisions now that will affect our outcome. When you're an employee at a corporation, someone else whom you would hope would be smarter than you yeah. is making those decisions. And they're probably not going to tell you about them until it's too late. And, and if those people are just shareholders um, or owners looking to milk the company for as much as it's They don't worth, even have your best interest in mind. They yeah. don't have your best interest right. in mind. As being working owners, it's in our best interest to get our paychecks as it is the other people in the company yeah. to get their yeah. Silver Orange in many ways is more like a worker cooperative than it is like a uh, entrepreneurial corporation. 
Yeah. I mean, it is both. Yeah, it, it is both. But a majority of the workers, a slim majority of the workers, are owners in the yeah. company. Like, I think if you talk to people who ran a co-op grocery store in Brooklyn, you'd probably find that you had a lot in common with them. Like, just for, not, not in terms of bohemianness. Bohemianness. <laughs> I mean, just in terms of, like, concern. Blogging and whatnot. <laughs> See, this is, if we could segue temporarily right over Stephen's wedding. Whatever. Down to uh, the last one, the doing stuff in the open thing. This is. I just want to make a small point, which I think it's. I mean, you said that people think that what I do is like unusual and risky, and I don't can't remember the words you used. But there's some kind of magic involved. Yeah, but there's not, and I think people think about Silver Orange in the same way. Like, I think people think like that you're somehow special to be able to do what you like to uh, not yeah, have to go to work yeah. every day. And, but I wonder if you have a responsibility as a result to convince people that you're not special by describing what it is that you are. Like I, I would, I, I think we are special, um, and, and I don't need, mean that in a prideful, conceited way. I think that if Silver Orange wasn't what Silver Orange is, all eleven of us would probably be able to do what we do by ourselves, either for another company or um, as like you, kind of a freelance um, worker. The magic, or what's special about Silver Orange, is that we have 11 people who can work together and work together very well. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Which is hard to do because there's a lot of group and personal dynamics that happen in, in that many people, and that's mm-hmm. what is hard. Starting that's a lot harder than starting a company. Right. But I think the it would be interesting for the world at large because the you know I'm just sort of thinking if I'm 16 and thinking about how my life is going to go, the dominance information I have available to me is not that. Like, yeah, there's not true. a lot of examples of 11 people getting together and having a sort of weird worker cooperative entrepreneurial hybrid Especially corporation. Especially if you're on Prince of Rot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, it would be interesting to sort of like I would, if there was a book about Silver Orange I guess is what I'm saying, I would buy it. We'll probably write it someday. There's rumors of a documentary being made. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, the, uh, it's interesting that you bring that up because in the earlier days of the company, I think we fostered Intentionally, the uh, you know uh, some kind of mystique. We, we didn't want people to. It was like we were embarrassed that people might find out we were just a bunch of kids starting a right. company in the basement so of an old. Right. And then yeah. probably never totally thrown that off. No, we still have that because that was sort of somewhere sort of ingrained in our DNA. We've opened up a lot. Oh, I know. Yeah. Since, um, but um, when we were starting, there was that fear that someone might find out we're just a bunch of dorks and. Um, but I think maybe now, partially th- through our success, we've gained the confidence that um, either we're not dorks or dorks can be successful. I don't know which of the two it is. I, guess, I mean, part of the reason I bring this up is because coming back from the Reboot Conference, I've sort of somehow found the open source religion in a way that I never had found it before. You I mean, I, well, I've been a long time user of Linux and Apache and you know all these open source tools, but I've never been a participant, I would say, in the in the system. You were a leech. Yeah, I was a leech, and I guess I had always sort of thought, like, to to participate, like, as a contributor, you had to be like Nathan, like, you had to be some sort of uber-genius, carpenter, code-genius, technical director. Like Nathan Fredrickson. Well, that's, yeah, yeah. And Works in theory.org. So, I guess I realized that, and, and there's this whole sort of thing that you sort of assume if you're going to contribute code, it has to be perfect, and if it's not perfect, then people are going to judge you, and then I just sort of realized I could ignore that. And just I'm not. I, I can't claim that I'm like hacking the 
Linux kernel now, but I've just sort of like done a couple of little PHP things, and I put them online in a way that I never would have. And people have, not again in a sort of a huge rush, but people have taken those and improved them and posted them on their own blog and started to use them, and you sort of realize that there's this organic sort of self-perpetuating thing that is interesting. The barrier to entry might not be as high as you Yeah, and imagine. that doing stuff out in the open, to quote from the agenda, <laughs> is can be interesting in ways which you never could have uh, possibly imagined. Yeah, yeah. I think we've found that as well at Silver Orange. This, uh, and I don't think we've, we've quite settled on where the balance is. Yeah. So yeah, actually, kind of, to, I think the barrier to entry for open source um, is similar to the barrier for entry for working for yourself or starting your own business. People think it's a lot higher than what it actually is. It just involves actually doing stuff. Yeah, you have to do it. You have to get your get into the code. Well, I, I probably what what saved me, <laughs> so to speak, is going to Reboot, meeting people who had like had dot-com companies and they had succeeded or failed or, but you know, who were just doing stuff and realizing that they were just like me. They were people too. Like, like they were boring, things. they were interesting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that they were no better or worse than I, so, and maybe that's what you need. Like, uh, I don't know. And I guess that's what I'm trying to say is, do we have a responsibility to make what we do appear to not be as difficult as people perceive it to be? Well, I think you could maybe abstract that little nugget of wisdom a bit more and just say, be open and honest about what you do. Maybe things, parts of it are difficult and inaccessible. But well, just that's be true. That's true. open yeah. and honest about it, and people can take from that what they will. But like a lot of business, though, um, you know, whether it be open source or or just entrepreneurship, it's there's this whole mystique around it. I remember exporting is a big word that they use here on the island, and they have exporting seminars, and they have exporting you know courses, and they have exporting trade missions and things like that. And finally, one day at Silver we decided to pick up the phone and call somebody from away and ask them if they wanted to do business. <laughs> And it works, and that's all we do. Now, now we're a huge exporter. Now we're a huge <laughs> exporter, and I think that if if you were to listen to how how our culture presents exporting in the business entrepreneurship way, it seems like it's a, a task that you have to do all of these different things. What yeah. it actually is just involves picking up the phone and dialing a number that has a different area code than you. <laughs> well, that, that's true, and if you look at the the when government tries to um, stimulate economic development. It's almost by doing that, they're putting up a big sign saying, this is difficult, you need help, we're here to help. Right. Whereas yeah, if they just said, this is really easy and anyone can do it. No, that's true. It's like they've done similar things. Like, I remember when I was in high school, they were encouraging girls to go into math and science. But there was an inherent implication in that, that this isn't something that girls usually do. And that can have, a, I think, a sort of a, the opposite of the intended effect. And, and this is something, Steve, you've talked a lot about, thought a lot about, in that we always assume there's someone smarter able to do something better than we can do. Newsflash, there's not. Everyone in the world is dumber than you are. <laughs> this is what I've been learning. The more I do, I'm smarter than everyone else. Well, I, I remember a piece of advice I gave to one of my brothers. I can't remember which one, but uh, I have so many. But uh, it was they, they, were, they were applying for a job, and they were about to go in for, to an interview. And I told them that if they went into the interview absolutely convinced themselves that they were the best person for that job, then they would get the job. But if they had any sense that, you know, they weren't worthy for the job and they were sort of trying to trick the people into employing, that would just telegraph through and they wouldn't get the job. Well, this is so true. I'm convinced of that. Is Dan's true. talked about this before, where um, you, you take over from me when I start to ramble here, Dan, but the idea that if you do something 
charitable or good or open with your with your business with the intention of having it pay you back it won't but if you do it with the genuine intention of the, you know the genuine good intention with no concern about ever being rewarded you will be rewarded somehow the universe it's, knows it's, it's the thought that counts <laughs> <laughs> we're descending into into the hallmark guru isn't yeah. it, aren't we but like it's it's um, I, I think it came out of uh, Alliant, our kind of phone network company for this area of the world, was giving out free long distance to areas affected by the tsunami, I right. believe. Oh, that's right. And yeah. and I was saying that it's either a brilliant or a stupid marketing um, tactic. If they're doing it out of the goodness of their hearts, then it will be the best marketing that they could have ever done. If they're doing it because they think people think it's from the good of their heart, then it will backfire somehow. And that's actually, we've seen that pan out in our business. We yeah. we, I don't know if I can think of specific examples, but just the um, do, do it because you mean it actually seems to be a good sort of well, life rule. A, a variation of this is I can't count the number of jobs that I have gotten, including the one which has employed me off and on for the last nine years, um, where I've been approached by a client, they want to do a particular thing, and I've said either I'm not, I can't really do that for you, or the situation I'm in right now, it, you know, I would be a bad provider of that because I wouldn't pay enough attention to you. We, we have a term for this. The no-sale sale. It's the no-sale well, sale. Yeah, sale. yeah, okay. But what inevitably happens is they go away for six months and do a whole bunch of other things, and then they remember that I was honest to them and come back and say, well, you know, you said this, but maybe if we do this and this and this, you could do it. And yeah. it also or, or if they have another project that they've come up But it's so, it seems so... It seems that works because it's so unusual to be honest. It, and it, it, I think it also falls back on the idea that you know, surely there must be someone in the world better at that than me because I'm not the expert in that field. They might go around and look and say, you know what, there might be we can't find them, or we might have found them, but we don't know because they weren't as honest with you. Or we don't like them. Yeah. So yeah, we've we've had similar experiences. We yeah. often say no to businesses. Yeah, and I think that and that's also part of the the open source thing is you assume that. Like if I, I, well, I've had all these ideas about places, and I've assumed uh, in an earlier version of me, I would have assumed, well, somebody's done that and figured that out, or I'm not good enough to do that, or if I do that, you know. But I've just, I've gone and implemented them by mostly by procrastinating against real paying work, and people think, hey, that's a neat thing, and I mean, it's not earth changing, but it's my little contribution to the movement. So and, uh, I'm thinking we should. Uh, Go on the road with a a uh, self help seminar. The three of us. <laughs> we could be a uh, pretty good inspirational speaker. I think so. We've got, we've got the uh, microphone. I, I think we could do the high school circuit. Are we allowed to uh, cuss on uh, on the microphone? Yeah, go for it. You have to tame the cunt. I'm going to have to edit that out. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, actually, wow. please do. That's a reference to the Magnolia, the movie, by the way. Uh, wow. I have uh, cussing to a whole new level. <laughs> you're just getting ready to get married. Um, I've done the high school circuit and it doesn't work. Uh, oh, hold it! You did the high school circuit. I did. I did a. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> say again. <laughs> the uh, too many metaphors. Too many metaphors. I was. I went like six years ago to UPI to a high school career day we were seminar. Were you? Yeah, I think we were there the year before. Okay. Well, Maybe. I sort of told them the whole. You don't have to go to university. You can be <laughs> freelance. You can uh, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Blah blah blah. blah. And I was treated like a heretic in church. Yeah, I, I get 
It might have been an age thing. Um, I do that at, at some. I mean, I've done. Yeah, but you look like a surfer, and I don't. That's the problem. Yeah, and you kind of do look like a surfer, particularly today. Yeah. Carry uh, on. And and like people lap that up now. Maybe right. It's a Maybe it is a time, generational but, thing. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah, people do lap it up, and and I think we get a lot of a surprising amount of emails from younger people to our just generic silver orange uh, email address that says, "I really want to do something like you guys." How should I do it? What you know? How do you price your websites when you you know tell a client they are, or how did you start and tell us your story type of things? And we get a surprising amount of emails like that that we try and do our best to. We do a lot of common sense advice. Yeah. See, I would. There's something about that which makes me feel like if you're the kind of person who sends email to Silver and asking you how to do it, then you're not. Then you're not. That is absolutely true. I think. I think there's something to that. Uh, Partially because, like, I remember I, I sent an email to my old professor, Stephen Argosi, who was at Zapier PRAM. We were bidding on a contract and we didn't know how much to bid. And I asked him how, when he used to work for Control Data, I asked him, how much did you know how to bid? And he said, well, we would be walking up the steps to the client's door for the meeting where we would tell them how much we were going to bid. And we'd say, like, should it be like 50000 or 500000 or $5 million? What do you think? And it was I, so I just realized it was all arbitrary. Nobody really knows how well, much that's to bill anyway. This it, it comes back to my discovery, and see, this this really dawned on me and frightened the hell out of me when I was like 18 years old, when I was waiting to become an adult and realized that it never happens, and adults actually don't know what's going on in the world either. That that was a something that I think we impart on children. That you know, when you grow up, you'll know about all this stuff, and you'll be able to eat all the when you hit you the pavement. Yeah. yeah, but nobody knows anything about anything. I mean, that pricing scenario happens to us on a weekly basis right. where how do you know? I mean, and IBM and Oracle and all, and Microsoft, they, and like Microsoft Project and all those different marketing streams don't do us very much service because they portray the fact that we can calculate to the penny how much things are going to cost to develop. That's not the case. Yeah, we yeah. can't do it. And Anyone who tells you they can might be lying. Well, I've actually had, I've had uh, meetings with clients where they've sort of come to me with a, a chart, you know, that says, okay, we'll spend two weeks on development and three weeks on production testing. And, and I've said to them, you know, you know that this is a lie. <laughs> and they said, well, yeah, but then we go on and talk about it anyway. So. And, you know, it's, it's, it's weird that people look at that and place value on it. We've been in situations where we've gone through that process with someone knowing that, it's just a process and it's not actually the truth and then them agreeing with that but still adhering to it and holding us to it even though we all just made it up at the I mean, start it's interesting because the model which I think more accurately, accurately reflects reality is how much if I'm your client how much is it going to cost me to divert the organism that is Silver Orange's attention to my project for this amount of enough time to do something <laughs> mind share pricing interesting well that's it yeah yeah, yeah. Because you've got a lot of other things going on, check and slash dots. I think uh, <laughs> I think I think we're going to move to a mindshare pricing well, format. Well, we've taken the first step. We now have a new. I'm going to announce it to the public. We have a new policy. We do not write proposals. No anymore. proposals anymore. We've yeah. done 47 proposals since we incorporated five, six years ago, and we've won none of them. And like proposal being a 25-page thing about what we're going to do for your company. We decided that we are no longer writing proposals, and if you ask us to do it, we won't and we will not take your business. And uh, we've shocked the pants off of a couple of people by telling them that. Um, and it turns out a lot of people don't want a proposal because that's 25 pages of... That's after read. They yeah. have to read. Yeah. Mostly no, I mean, I would, full of bullshit. Yeah. Um, I would say that the, that 
that will work now. Mm-hmm. That that the way to know whether Silver Orange will work for you is to look at what Silver Orange has done before, read the blogs of the Silver Orange people, no lack of come, come up mm-hmm. to Charlottetown and have lunch with us, or now, them. <laughs> but what's interesting, though, is that you might think, well, we can do that now, because you know we have a reputation, maybe. But we, when we were starting our company and staying up all night, um, writing, writing proposals. proposals. Yeah, we didn't win any proposals then either. It no, was no. that's Never not where proposals. that's yeah. not where business came from. You should open source all your proposals. Um, yeah, we should, but they're useless. Well, I know, <laughs> but I mean, you should. It'd be like freetermpapers.org. Free free proposals. Well, we actually now what we have is sort of a little stock, like two page template that has a bullet list of the things we'll do for you right. and a summary of the total cost. Well, part of our industry. Like the lion's share of the work is actually figuring out what the work is, and if you do that before you're starting to get then paid, you've done all the work. You've yeah. done ninety percent of the work, and you just have to code it now. So yeah. it's just yeah, it's true. No, I mean, and when Johnny and I are talking about whether to take on additional little extra projects, the thing that is going on in my mind is, do I like the people that are behind it? Like, do I want to hang out with them and talk to them about their project or not? Um, do I am I comfortable with the extra diversionary stuff that this is going to throw into my life. And it's remarkable to me just the degree to which taking on a small project can totally screw up your life. Absolutely. Um, and just because you have to invoice and phone and answer email. And I'm convinced you can only really hold one thought in your head at a time. Well, a human being can only do that. Yeah, or I can only do that. Maybe <laughs> I have attention deficit disorder or something. I think that's true. But I think it's like I think that whole sort of mindshare pricing model is is interesting. I mean, well, it's sort of. I think we've just started a, a like. Well, no, I think you're really onto something. Uh, Daniel Berka and I, who works at Silver Orange with us, we were discussing a potential project, and we had been talking to this company about maybe doing some design work for them. It was a relatively large project, and we were in a situation where we can afford to say no because we have a lot of work coming up in the next few months. Um, so it wasn't like there was a great financial need to take this on. So that gave us some freedom. But the en- in the end, you know, we were sort of going back and forth: should we do this? Should we not? We got the feeling that the people in this project were really gung-ho and excited about the product, and we weren't. We didn't think it was a bad idea, but we just weren't excited about it. And we could tell they needed someone to like get on board with their idea. And we could do a good job for them, but we couldn't get as excited about the project as they were. So we knew that we would never be able to live up to what they need from us. Therefore, we, that was the sort of the tip the scales, and we said no to the project. And I think we did them a favor. Well, you know, the other interesting thing when I think about the, once I have a client, the things that I do for the client, is that some of the things that work best, that I'm most passionate about, that ultimately work best for the client, are things which don't involve any sort of meeting or planning, or, you know, it's sort of like an example. We had, uh, there's a guy named Judd Hale, who was one of the editors at Yankee, and he has been producing a monthly, what is now called a podcast, but it was just basically a real audio thing in which he was like a column for the website. He's been doing it for like six years. And it dawned on me that now that there's like a way of making that into a podcast, I should just do that. And I didn't ask anyone, or I didn't write a proposal, we didn't have a meeting about it, which could, I mean, I could have literally consumed like 15 hours of person hours if we'd done it that way. So I just like created an RSS feed, called it a podcast, submitted it to all the podcast places, and just let it be. Well, as a result, now it's like in all the directories. There's been a story in the New Hampshire Business Journal about it. There's another story about to be in it. You know, it's it's, it's just one of those things that and sometimes I think like proposals and bureaucracy get in the way of interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. 
But at some point, you have to make money to live and survive. But you, but you but mean, I mean that does make that makes yeah. money for Yankee. It makes money for me because they're going to pay me to do it because yeah. they trust me enough to allow me to do. Yeah, that and the key there is to be able to sort of either quantify it to the client or show them that you can't quantify it, but that there's value to it. And clearly, that client has enough of your mind share that you're willing to take that time and thought and do that. And if, yeah. and if they and didn't, even if they were paying you well, you probably just no, would have done And I know else. that they will appreciate the effort and mm-hmm. think well of it and not think that it was a waste of time. Yeah. And, uh, but, it's, yeah, but I think there ha- for me, there has to be enough of that play in the system. Because if it's just like, okay, we've spec'd out this thing and we want you to do this, which is a totally valid money-making idea, but it doesn't interest me personally, then... I can't live on that. So. Yeah. But there's got to be some of that, presumably. We've had a couple of soul zapping projects that we've had to do that, you know, just by circumstance we got into. And they're, we would rather not get paid an e-craft dinner for a year yeah. than have to go. Well, I those. think they're an enormous, enormous financial cost to the company because mm-hmm. they're, they're just, if you're not excited about them, they're harder to get done. And they're, you know, you can't, like, it, it's no good to tell you, tell your, your, your coworkers, you know, we need to work harder and faster to get this shitty project done. Um, and it's just a drain, and it's a distraction from the clients who, who who you could be very effective, like with what you did with the podcast, with your mind share. Most of, most of the clients we love to deal with right now are people we have conversations with, and it's just a conversation-based business where we talk to them, they talk to us, and we do the things that we both well, think it's Well, what I've idea. tried to communicate on my corporate website is... <laughs> You can't really show quotation marks on the radio. There needs it should to be, be some, some sort of boing like sound. Or something. <laughs> uh, is that that having reinvented work with you is more like dating than anything else? Like I think that's the closest. I get uncomfortable in sexual metaphors coming to the conversation. Well, it was sort of platonic dating, I meant. Okay, so you're not going to go all the way. So you're just friends. Yeah. Okay, I'm comfortable with that. Carry on. So it's more like <laughs> hanging out than dating. It's more like hanging out, going okay. to ball games. Yeah. No, but I mean, it, it's sort of like you don't, when you have friends, you don't like say, you know, how are we going to maximize our time together for the next 45 minutes so that our ROI on this friendship can, you know, blah, 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 right. blah, blah, You need significant grants while buy-in to get movie plans for the weekend. <laughs> exactly. That's our Q2 forecast. Okay, we're running to an hour and 13 minutes now, so right, let's um, you're going to get married. I'm getting married. Well, I don't know that there's much to say about it. Uh, I have something to say about it. It kind of relates to the last conversation. A lot of the people that have been inquiring whether or not we can work with them this summer are amazed to find out that our whole company is pretty much written off the week that Steve's getting married and <laughs> said we're not going to be productive. And people find that fascinating and sometimes disturbing that an entire company will shut down its doors. Well, our one well and more fascinating probably that you would admit it, because it probably yeah. happens more in the rest of the world, but people just never admit that yeah, it's true. Yeah, well, I mean, our, in our company, there are three people who make up the primary design team who do a lot of the design work, and we've been doing a fair amount of sort of design consulting work uh, projects with just the three of us, and I'm one-third of that team, and I'm going to be gone on a honeymoon, and I'm going to be busy weeks, for a week yeah. getting married. Yeah, I have to explain to my clients why I won't be in the office on Monday, because it's your bachelor party. <laughs> See, there you go. And then, you know, and the other guys are going to be busy with some of that same stuff. So we're human beings. We have other things so going on. So if you want to hack lives. into any of the technical facilities at 84 Fitzroy Street on Monday, I'd be an excellent... I've said men will be drunk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you will also have a paintball gun mm-hmm. and a golf club. All right, we can cross that off. Major life change for me happening. Yes. And it was like number seven on the list.
Try try and sell that to your fiance. I'll edit it to the front of the list. Yeah, I'm pretty confident that my fiance is going to make some changes to our list. Yeah. It's a massive crossing off happening. And we're not talking about Google Maps. Um, we're not talking about tags. We've already talked about <laughs> we've this. We've talked about that. Um, so maybe that and that. Okay, sure. Let's talk about the Rookipedia because I it's a personal passion of mine. <laughs> you know what? It's a personal passion of mine too, <laughs> which actually kind of disturbs me. Um, my wife Becky and I were or I guess Becky and I. I know you don't like me saying my wife. Um, Did I not? I, I th- you took issue with it last year, I think. I can't remember. I think it was the. I pos- think I've evolved. It was it the was possessiveness of the term. Right. Right. My wife, yes. Becky and the her wife. Hu- Becky and her. <laughs> <laughs> Becky and her husband, me, um, were looking through the Wikipedia two nights ago, um, and we noticed that both Steve and myself have uh, substantially larger pages than pages than your son Oliver. <laughs> well, that is true. <laughs> I spend more time with you than I do with him. That's not true. But uh, it's what is the Wikipedia? Well, the Wikipedia is a wiki, and I was sort of inspired to have a wiki, a personal wiki, for two reasons. One is when I was at Reboot, I went to the Wikipedia uh, session and sort of caught the Wikipedia bug. Uh, and basically, for the uninitiated, a wiki is a website that anyone, relationship to the runner of the wiki or not, can edit. So any page in a wiki, anyone can edit. If so anyone listening to this has never been to the Wikipedia, Search for it on Google and go to it. It's the most amazing website yeah. on the internet. Yeah. So you, Joe, high school student in Bedeck, Nova Scotia, can go to the article about Sir Alexander, Alexander, Sir Alexander Graham Bell, Bell and it, and you can update it if you Add want. Add a photo or yeah. whatever you want. To and and the, I mean the lie that I learned about the Wikipedia, this, the uh, the assumption of the Wikipedia is that like there's millions of people editing it, which is true, but there's also some interesting statistics statistics <laughs> about the fact that most of the editing is done by a relatively small group of people. But I don't small think that's group tr- being like, 15 like 1,500. Yeah. And, and the key summary here for people that aren't familiar with the Wikipedia is the first question that comes to mind, well, like, what if people put information that's not true in it or if they deface it? Occasionally it happens and it's fixed almost instantly. It works. You wouldn't think it would, but it works. And it's an incredibly good and effective resource. Uh, a recent example of how well it works would be the London Bonnets. Um, I mean, most news sites, you know, they're trying to report on three minutes of news over six hours. And within probably three or four hours, the Wikipedia had five pages of factual information. Yeah, an encyclopedia article about that day's event. Yeah. Right, and yeah. basically writing history as Some, it happens. Somebody, I think Jason Cocky posted a link to it, or somebody did. There's a... Uh, Somebody took a sort of a screen video of the that page throughout the day, and you can watch it evolve. And it's pretty neat. And you can even see it was defaced actually once or twice during the day, and it was immediately fixed. And, yeah. um, a bit of a tangent from the Wikipedia for a second, but about wikis. It's something I've been finding. I always thought wikis were these weird websites that looked ugly um, and were confusing, and which they are a little bit. Way. But the software has been evolving to the point where those things are no longer. Necessary. They're uh, often true as well, but I think at one point in the early days they sort of wore that ugliness as a badge of honor. Yeah. but there like are we're about content, not about design. There are a few. I, I've been getting more interested in the, the idea of using the particular software you're using. I think is the MediaWiki. Yeah, which is the software that joins, which drives the Wikipedia. Yeah, and we have wiki.silverorange.com using the same software. But there are a few projects that are using that software to power a almost a normal website and it 
um, there's the, the Hula Project, which is an open source mail server. It doesn't really matter what it's about. Hula-project.org. And if you go to that, it's a professional-looking software project website, and you wouldn't know looking at it that it's a wiki, and it is. Yeah. Well, and the Reboot Conference website was yeah, a wiki, that's another and you would example. never know that. I mean, yeah. you sort of got to know that over time. Yeah. There's a, um, I think the Beagle, which is a search software for Linux, Beagle Project. I don't know the URL, but if you Google for it, it's another we'll one. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Very professional looking, and uh, so it's interesting that that. Well, I think you're right that the sort of plainness and the what I saw as ugliness of the wiki was worn as a badge. It's no longer necessarily associated with it. But the Wikipedia. Well, what I realized is I write this blog and I refer to things like Summerside, let's say, and that's fine for everyone who I know who lives in PEI and knows what I mean when I when I espouse the idea of Summerside in a conversationally useful sort of way, everyone knows that I sort of... You were referring to, to the other town. The other town, the rival, the Shelbyville. That's the Shelbyville. Yeah. So, um, but I, I sort of thought I need a place to offer context for that sort of thing. Or when, when you I say need like an abstraction layer for your context. Yeah. Almost like, when I like an encyclopedia. Exactly. So I, I went out to the Formosa with Stephen and Dan today, uh, and we talked about 84 Fitzroy, like all those nouns in that sentence. I don't want to have to say I went out to the Formosa with Stephen Garrity, who works upstairs at Silver Orange and Bobby. Sounds like you need some RDF <laughs> triples. What you've done Double. in the past too is link to like if you Your say website. Stephen, you link to Stephen's blog, or yeah. you say Dan, you link to my blog. And if you went to my blog right now, you'd see that you can buy a T-shirt that says "Your mom reads my blog," and that doesn't really tell your readers anything about Small tangent, you should go to CEOblues.com and see the sweet t-shirts that see, I had a better t-shirt this morning. I was thinking of this in the shower, which was, um, I've aggregated your mom's RSS. That's good, although we, did you put up the other yeah. shirt as well? There's your mom a subscribes to my RSS feed. Hmm. That's pretty good. And I'm also becoming an advocate for pronouncing the, the uh, acronym RSS. It's ARS. <laughs> Check out your ARS feed. Anyway, so, <laughs> maybe I'll put that on the, uh, Wikipedia and the Wikipedia. And on a t-shirt. I put all this together and thought, okay, what I need is an encyclopedia of me. <laughs> Which struck me initially as being an incredibly vain and self-serving thing to do. And it is. But uh, I got over that. And I got over that mostly because I thought, if anyone complains about it, I will just suggest that they do the same thing for themselves. Because I think it's equally useful for everyone. And so it's been interesting the degree to which I found it useful that I haven't sort of ignored it and let it wither on the vine. And what I tend to do now is as I write my blog posts, if I'm going to express a concept, whatever it is, that's sort of part of my life in some way, I've modified my blog editor, so I just put it in double square brackets. It automatically becomes a wiki entry, and then I just go and edit the wiki entry. Oh, that's pretty cool. And uh, so you'll find, like, there's a list of probably 30 people there, and sort of, it's, that's not all the people in my life, but as I blog about people, I sort of add an entry for them. And places I've traveled, and like I'm going to Yankee in August, and I put my flight numbers there, and... Uh, I, it's it's incredibly like Robert Scoble. One of the interesting things that Robert Scoble said at at Reboot, maybe the only interesting thing he said, <laughs> was he talked about friction and how when you're designing software and systems, friction, which I guess he was sort of using to mean like those little annoying things that gum up the works in a process. Boot up time on a computer. Yeah. Or, or like when you have to post an image to a weblog, it's like file save as, and then you got to put the width and the height and all that sort of thing, which takes like 30 seconds, but multiplied out over your life years. Yeah. Um, if you can reduce friction, which a wiki basically reduces to zero because it's just click on edit and type, mm -hmm. um, 
you know, it becomes something which is easy to integrate into your life. So now it's sort of I have this blog and this Rookopedia, and you can't really separate them. Now, what I found, see, the, the Rookopedia rocked my world. I have to talk a little bit about that. When, when I heard about the concept, I thought, wow, what a vain thing to do. That'll be the most <laughs> lame, lame website ever that I could possibly imagine. And then I started to look at the pages that were there, and I was intrigued, and I updated them a little bit. There was a page about the 84 Fitzroy building where we worked together, and I posted a photo up to it. And uh, the more I saw how you were using it, the more I think it's a, I think it's actually a really valuable website, and it it really complements the content you have in your web blog. Well, I when you talk about blogs, you're talking about people, and when you reference other blogs, you're referencing the thoughts of other people. And the relationship between you and that other person isn't expressed in a in a hyper, in a hyper no. link. You need some sort of middleware to express yeah. what. No, that that's true. When is. I when I link to your blog, I'm mm -hmm. I'm saying there is a relationship between Dan and I, right. but I'm not expressing the quality. So a really good example would be if you talk about either Dan or I, you might link to our names in the Wikipedia, and that would that page would have a brief little bio about how you know us through the company we work for, and that people can see then that we both work for the same company and that we share a building with you and that explains a, and that it explains a lot the relationship between Steve and I as yeah, you know yeah. we both work together we grew up together in the same street um, if it had been around a long time ago I would have been a, would have been a lot easier for me to understand that there were two Catherines in your life <laughs> and that you weren't in fact dating <laughs> the historian <laughs> Catherine Hennessy <laughs> well that's good uh, the, the difficulty I've run into it's not really a difficulty but the, one of the challenges I've faced is it's a it's a wiki that it's about my world, mm -hmm. and but it's a wiki, so anyone can contribute to it, and people have. And I'm sort of running little side projects in it, which are not really specifically like about things in my life, but they're a useful holder for things about talking about bread and stuff, which we won't talk about today. <laughs> not but you're scared to talk about. I am <laughs> <laughs> until I bring you bread. I but. Uh, but the difficulty I'm running into, like Rob Patterson, I wrote a Rob Patterson article because I blogged about something Rob had said, and I wrote it in the like I met Rob, like I wrote it in the first person. But then Rob wanted to come and update the article, but I don't think, and this is perfectly reasonable, he didn't feel comfortable in sort of writing it in my first person. So he sort of wrote something which was like Rob here, and it's sort of hard to know how to how to. I think a, a rule for personal encyclopedias: you can't write anything about yourself. You know, I can't go on Peter's Wikipedia and and write about myself. Well, you know, well, I mean, I think you could update the factual information. Okay, uh, but but I don't think, but that's just my birthday and like the address of my head. It's interesting that there's, I think, can you <laughs> update? There's either an official or just an implicit rule in the Wikipedia that you don't edit the entries about yourself. Like, oh, is there really? Yeah, you know, I don't know if that's official or not, right. but like the Wikipedia is. I, I don't know if it is official or not, but I think it's kind of unwritten or written. Yeah, yeah. And that, that if you... So, so David Suzuki can't edit the David Suzuki. Well, if you took... Say there was an entry about Silver Orange, for example, and it said we were founded in 1996, and I could go in and say... I, I think it would be reasonable for me to go correct that and say, well, was it 1998 or 99? Right. But I don't think it would be fair to change this... For me, to change the sentence that says we're a small web development company from Canada to a... Large small but influential right, right. Um, web development company. So, but I ran into the same issue that Rob did when I was looking at my page and it was about me, written from your perspective in the first person. And I, you know, I, I think I wanted to add a link from my page to the Silver Orange page or something. 
but if I wrote Stephen works at Silver Orange, yeah. I was implying that, that you had that I had written that. Yeah. But, but I think that's a r- relatively small issue. And it, it seems to have been more. I think what what has it sort of evolved to be is it is really something that I am maintaining, and the wickiness of it allows people to correct things or contribute if they want to contribute or to participate. Like it's easier when we're talking like about working on projects together. Wiki is. It's an interesting idea, but it's not necessary for this type of thing to happen. Like this could be on a closed content management system that you no. maintain, and we submit changes by email. But, yeah. but the thing is, we wouldn't submit changes. No. No. So no. It, it reduces the friction. It does, and it reduces. I mean, most importantly, <laughs> it reduces the friction for me. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because if I had to, like, you know, file new encyclopedia entry, save as, to then upload it to the like, I would just never do that. Yeah. But if I can go Dan James and double brackets and then edit, that's mm-hmm. easy enough for me. So. So I'm all about the Wikipedia. Good so show. is there going to be a Steve opinion? I don't know. It's a lot of work. No, it's not. No, that's the thing. <laughs> not everybody can do it. Sorry. Yeah. Well, there's, a, well, there's already a... We have a wiki on one of our Silver Orange servers. Is that an open that. wiki? Yeah. And what is it about? Uh, whatever. I have a page up there about uh, the GNOME Outliner software project, and we have a... I guess yeah. if people are hearing about this, they might catch a of a sneak project. That's we a have a new open source software project of a web application toolkit written in PHP that it works. Is that the source. P code or the P server or the P system? It's called SWAT. Oh, okay. It used to be called the P series. It's replacing the P series, our okay. previous software code. But all of the, um, there's a pa- there's a site about that that we just, we haven't really done any official announcements of it yet, but it's all up there in the open and anyone can edit it. Alright. Um, Everyone's checking their cell phones. <laughs> Sorry, we just got We might have to leave because our, ba- our office is uh, out of power. So. Oh, oh no, power's back on. Oh, is it? Okay, great. Our cell phones are going. You guys are living here. way further in the future than I. But I think we can. Uh, do we want to talk about? Uh, do you want to talk in the open? Places. We've talked about oh, that. Well, we've talked about places before. So, although never on. <laughs> Check out the Europe. Yeah, if you go to places.com, p l a z e s or p l a z e s, it's just an interesting project that we're participating in to some degree, all of us, although not Nate as much as he should. I was skeptical of it when I heard it, and I've been one over. It's a cool project, worth checking out. Yeah. And, and uh, send emails to Nathan Fredrickson, um, Nathan at silverorange.com, and tell him to finish the game plugin for Blazes. Yeah. And then, I, you know, just to finish that thought, um, Stefan and Felix, who are the Blazes guys, again, are just like two guys in Germany who you I met, met at Reboot. Reboot, and they didn't appear to be like Uber gods, so... Hackers are people too. <laughs> Hackers, terrorists, dogs are people too. Too. That's something I learned recently. Okay, this is the longest podcast we've ever done. How long so is it? One hour and twenty nine minutes. I think it's got very good content, though. Well, that's very vain of you. <laughs> this well, is all about vanity. This is an exercise in vanity. We're doing a podcast. Yeah, but you know, the thing is, is I, I like I did this little experiment with my friend Stephen Southall uh, doing movie reviews for me, and um, or with me. And I sort of experimented with like total unedited version of the, and then medium edited and like heavy super edit. And I realized that each of them appears appeals to a different sort of listener, so that it's not one is not necessarily better than the other. So, so are you going to chop up this? Well, I don't know if I should or not. Like it, if you chop it up, then it removes the three guys having lunch feel of it. Well, at the risk of sounding like a total knob talking about how great a job we did, I don't think there's a whole lot of rambling that we did today that we need to be edited out. Send feedback to <laughs> the, <internet>. the show <laughs> notes. Does um, the live from the Promosa DFs have a page on the Wikipedia? 
I think it does. I think yeah. it does, yeah. 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 Or it does, it will by the time this happens. Yeah. And uh, the line for the foremost of Dios does have an RSS feed, but I can't remember what it is. So. An, an RS feed. An RS feed. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks. Let's go home. Or wherever we go when we're done. <laughs>